Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, 1 Kings chapter 17 through 19. Now, before we jump into these great stories of Elijah, the Tishbite, this prophet up in the kingdom of Israel, we need to go back a few chapters to some, to, to especially one chapter, and that's 1 Kings chapter 12, because this particular chapter really sets the stage for what you keep bringing up, Taylor, throughout these episodes is kind of this overarching um, feeling of the Lord God of Israel wanting to make this connection with the people. I want to be your God, you'll be my people, and he keeps trying to make that connection and the people keep rejecting him. Well, chapter 12 is where that really um, is a, is a um, game changer for the whole rest of the Old Testament. Really important chapter, we'll map it out here in just a minute. We have this overarching theme in the scriptures. I'm going to follow up on what Tyler said. We sometimes get stuck in the weeds in the scriptures. We get lost in stories or we have our favorite stories, which can be very, uh, very powerful to us, and yet we often miss why the Bible is preserved. It was about revealing God to his people and showing the consequences of a trustworthy God and what happens when people trust him or not. And we heard a couple of lessons ago what happened when the people chose not to have God as a king. They wanted an earthly king. And God said, okay, I'm going to allow you to do that, but I'll tell you what's going to happen. Those earthly kings are likely to lead you away from me. And we're going to see stories of this with Jeroboam and subsequently many of the kings that show up in this record here that they cause Israel to sin. And that phrase literally means to take people away from loyalty to God. These kings demonstrate covenantal unfaithfulness. They model unfaithfulness. Leaders are supposed to model faithfulness to God. The job of a leader is to encourage people to find God, to support people in that journey, to remove the obstacles. Instead, we see these kings doing the opposite. Which, by the way, if you, if you pause there for a second and say, hmm, this sounds a little bit like the pre-mortal uh, realm where you have Jehovah and you have Lucifer. Jehovah pointing us to God, encouraging us to have trust in and faith in God, turning us to, to the, the, the sovereign power of the universe, the one who's willing to share all that he has with us. That's what Jesus did. And what did Lucifer do? He turned people away from God and toward himself, which is exactly what's going to happen over and over again with many of these wicked kings in both Israel and, and Judea, or Judah. Let's, let's very quickly bring this back up to speed. Remember on the timeline we had Saul, then we had David, then we had Solomon. So these are the three, what are traditionally known as the three kings of united Israel. Now realizing there were periods of time when David was, was alive where you had other king uh, claims to the throne up north, but he, he eventually brought all of the tribes back together. So you have these three kings over united Israel, so now Solomon is going to be replaced by his son named Rehoboam. And we mentioned him last week. Rehoboam had – he inherited this kingdom of Israel. So if you were to draw the Holy Land in very high satellite view, that's the United Kingdom of Israel, roughly. And you have the Philistines out here, and you have the Edomites and the Moabites and Ammonites and all these different groups, and you have Syria up north and Assyria over here and Babylon over here and Egypt down here. You get the idea, but that's roughly the land. Well, now Rehoboam takes over, and watch what happens. Look at chapter 12, verse 6, and King Rehoboam consulted with the old men. 
or the elders of the people, that stood before Solomon his father while he yet lived, and said, How do you advise that I may answer this people? So the people had asked him, What kind of a king are you going to be? How are you going to govern us? What kind of a what kind of an expectation can we have for your monarch, your time on the throne? So Solomon, even though he had ruled in peace, he had set up a bureaucratic organization so that the people of Israel gave of their time, wealth, and resources to supporting the kingdom. Now, generally that is not necessarily a bad thing, but it seemed to have been overdone, and people wanted some more free time for themselves and less taxes. So Solomon, in some ways, was being a bit heavy-handed near the end of his life with how much he was expecting of people's time and resources to support him and his kingdom. And this is what the people are asking. Rehoboam, are you going to lower the taxes for us? Are you going to lessen the burden on the people? And it's interesting how he strategically does something very problematic. So listen to the response from these old men. The 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 elders of the people who have been around a lot of years, they've seen what works, what doesn't work. There's a little bit of just wisdom that comes with their age and their experience, and here's what they say in verse 7, and they spake unto him, saying, If thou wilt be a servant unto this people this day, and wilt serve them, and answer them, and speak good words to them, then they will be thy servants forever. <laughs> now, I, I don't know about you, but that's a pretty good description of what Jehovah did in the premortal council, what he did in his earthly ministry, and what he's doing in his post-mortal ministry. He's serving us. He's providing for us. He is to us a God who, who is perfectly loyal and doing all these things for us, and because of that, because we sense of his perfect, infinite love, it makes his disciples be filled with this desire to serve him back, to be his servants forever. We want to do anything that he would ask us to do. So in this inverted kingdom of the Lord, instead of having the king be at the top, and we've talked about this before, the king is serving everybody. That's what the elders are telling Rehoboam, if you want to have a lasting legacy, then you serve and you, the people will then love you, and they'll do anything for you, Rehoboam. The elders were actually inviting Rehoboam to be more like Christ, to be more like the example of the best leader in the history of, of all time. So I think about King Benjamin, and he gives his final speech before he appoints his son as king, and he explains to people all the ways that he has served the people, and of course, they all fall down recognizing their nothingness before the Lord who has done all things for them, and they say, whatever you ask of us, we will do, and they enter into this covenant to serve God. Now remember, King Benjamin knew his job was to serve the people so they would see a model for Jesus, that the people would choose Jesus. It's this brilliantly beautiful example we have in the Book of Mormon. And these elders here in the Old Testament times, hundreds of years before King Benjamin, they understood this. Your job as a leader no matter your capacity, whatever leadership position you are in, in a family, as a parent, as a friend, maybe you're in a business, a hospital setting, a church position, is to serve. Serve, serve, serve. The word minister comes from the word minus. It literally means to make yourself less than so you can uplift other people. It seems like such a simple thing that a series of old men have come upon this wisdom and it's a little sad to have to read the story I know. about how Rehoboam chooses. I know. I wish we could say that the next verse said, therefore Rehoboam hearkened unto the wisdom of the elders or of these old men, and he served the people, and we would have a very different story moving forward. In fact, we wouldn't have had two kingdoms break off at that point, maybe at a later time perhaps, but not at that point. Look at what he does in verse 8. In fact, look at the very first word of chapter 12, verse 8, but that word, whenever it starts a sentence or a, a verse, it's in contrast to what came before. You got all this great advice, but implies, hmm, we're not going to follow it. We're going a different direction. 
but he forsook the counsel of the old men which they had given him, and he consulted with the young men that were grown up with him and which stood before him. So he now surrounds himself by people his own age who have the same level of, of life experience, and he says, what about you? What, do you? what kind of a leader do you think I should be? And these young men realizing, hey, this is our chance. If, if you if you will tax the people and get them to work even more, then we're your best friends, You're, we can be your counselors, we will benefit by this rising tide of taxes and, and servitude that's going to come into this monarchy, and we're going to benefit. So they told him, take what Solomon did and run with it and do even more. So that's what Rehoboam says to the people. He says, you thought you had it bad with my dad you just wait. I'm going to tax you, I'm going to serve you, or I'm going to have you serve me, I'm going to get everything I can out of you. That sounds an awful lot, once again, like an echo of this premortal theme that was introduced by Lucifer, of surrounding himself by people who he convinces that if I get all the power, I'll give more of it to you and you'll get more privileges, so, so support me in this, and he, he produces his contrary plan to Heavenly Father's plan, and it wasn't for the people's benefit. It wasn't for you and me. He didn't have our best interest in mind. He only had one person's interest in mind. And so that's exactly what's replaying here in chapter 12, is that variations on a pre-mortal theme. Seeking one's own glory that's right. versus the glory of God, which the only way to expand the glory of God is by serving and empowering others to enact their agency. It's just that simple. It is. It's liberty. It's freedom. It's agency. Whatever word you want to put on it, that's what's happening. So the northern ten tribes, they've come to ask this question. So we have two tribes down south, Judah and Benjamin. We have the ten tribes up north, and keep in mind, Levi is scattered among all of them because he's the, the, the Levites, the priests, they're performing the, the priestly functions. So these ten tribes up north, they walk away from this encounter with Rehoboam saying, uh, no, we are not going to follow you, and they go and there's a, a man that had risen to some level of, of notoriety among them named Jeroboam. And he was the one who was in charge in the later years of Solomon to manage this massive workforce that Solomon had organized to enrich the kingdom. So Jeroboam had a pretty good sense of the organizational structure of all the key players and of what people wanted. He knew how people felt and he realized, man, all I need to do is I got the organization, if I tell people, lower taxes and more freedom, they'll probably follow me. And they do. So he becomes the first king of the northern ten tribes, Rehoboam becomes the first king of the southern two tribes. This kingdom up north is traditionally called the kingdom of Israel. In other places it's called Samaria or Ephraim. Uh, it's got a variety of names that it's referred to in the New Testament and the – or sorry, in the Old Testament. And Rehoboam becomes the king of the kingdom of Judah sometimes called Jerusalem or just Judah. It's these two kingdoms down south. This sometimes can be a little confusing because we talk about Israel and the house of Israel, which we generally refer to all 12 tribes, but at this time in ancient Israelite history, around 922 BC, you have this separate kingdom that exists for 200 years, unfortunately mostly in apostasy before they're conquered by Assyria, taken into captivity, and that's where you get the idea of the ten lost tribes. They're lost because we don't know where they are. And yet, isn't there some effort going on right now to try to figure out where they are? Yeah. And oh yeah, missionary work. Yes, <laughs> it's beautiful. So just to keep things straight as we go into the rest of our biblical story now, between now and the end of the Old Testament, you're going to see a lot of names of different prophets and different kings. You have multiple kings up north in the kingdom of Israel, and by my count, they're all bad. There, there are some that maybe are less bad than the others, but they're all pretty wicked, leading the people astray. The, the narrative makes it clear not one of these kings in 200 years ever led the people in righteousness. The phrase is made that the kings 
made the people to sin. And we're going to talk about the story that launched their apostasy that lasted for 200 years. And down south in the kingdom of Judah, you have multiple kings as well. A few of them, a handful of them, are considered righteous. Uh, they, They at least destroy some of the groves and the altars and the idols that the people have been worshiping, and they reinstitute some some of the traditions that that we have from earlier on, getting the people to worship the Lord God of Israel. And and to be specific, to make this really brought all together about where we've been in the text, is what God is looking for, if there's going to be a king, the king's purpose. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 17, 14 to 20, God says if there's a king, the purpose of the king is to read the scriptures, have copies of the scriptures, and teach the scriptures to the people. The role of the king is to remind the people of covenantal instructions, the ones that were revealed at Mount Sinai. And kings who don't do that are apostate. They lead people away. They teach them to sin against God. So the purpose of kingship is intended to model for people how to be covenantally loyal. And if those kings are disloyal, they draw people away, prophets are raised up to call people back. Now notice in the Book of Mormon, King Benjamin as far as I know, there's no prophet in the time of King Benjamin except him, because as a king, he is leading people appropriately in faithfulness. King Noah, in the Book of Mormon, is unfaithful, and so a prophet needs to be sent to call the people to repentance. And what is Abinadi's message? He looks like Moses as he preaches the Ten Commandments. Remember, those are the covenantal stipulations for trustworthiness and loyalty to God that King Noah was not teaching the people. So as you're getting into this part of the Old Testament, you can look for these patterns. Are the kings living the covenantal instructions or not? If not, do I see a prophet calling the king and the people back into the fold of God? And if people are rejecting the prophets, what do I expect to happen? That the people will be removed out of the land because they aren't um, they're not living up to the expectation. So this is the overarching pattern going on here. And it's a sad one because there's all these stories of these kings who just end up not fulfilling God's expectations. So just to kind of give you a 30,000-foot preview, looking forward into the rest of the Old Testament, some of the prophets that are going to show up that are predominantly serving among the ten tribes up north. Now, there are occasional times where they'll interact with the king and some of the people down south as well, and vice versa. But largely, your most famous prophets that that you are most familiar with up north would be Elijah and Elisha. And we're going to tell Elijah's story today. That's that's the, the majority of the rest of this lesson, is Elijah's dealings with people who are really struggling up north. Down south in Judah, some of the, the prophets that you're most familiar with would be Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, uh, Jeremiah, uh, Lehi, he comes out of out of this kingdom down south, leaving Jerusalem, and that's just a handful. And there there are others. A, a couple that we put, could put up here: are Amos, Hosea, very powerful prophets, but their focus was to the north, ten northern tribes. And it's interesting how Lehi's message seems to be related to the messages we find in the Northern Kingdom, and it's fascinating that Lehi's ancestry comes from the North, and his message seems to resonate with the prophetic messages that Northern prophets were giving the people on a regular basis, with the focus being, if ye keep my commandments, ye shall prosper in the land. That was a very common phrase up here in the North, and here's Lehi, who's now living in the tribe of Judah, but he himself is from a Northern Ten Tribe tribe, that his ancestors came down during when the Assyrians came to conquer. So really interesting things that will help us to see how the Book of Mormon connects to these biblical records. Yeah, so let's watch the beginning of Jeroboam's reign as king. Turn over to chapter 12, verse 26. Jeroboam said in his heart, Now shall the kingdom return to the house of David. If this people go up to do sacrifice in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then shall the heart of this people turn again unto their Lord even unto Rehoboam king of Judah, and they shall kill me and go again to Rehoboam king of Judah. 
Notice what his motivation is. It's, I can't have the people going down to worship at the temple in Jerusalem, or they're going to then follow Rehoboam. I need him to follow me. It's, it's about me having the power. I've got to turn him to me. So what does he do? He says, wherefore the, the king took counsel. Did you notice that? He took counsel. He's listening to people who are giving him a solution that isn't to turn them to God. It, it isn't about, I've got to serve them and I've got to decrease and God has to increase. It's about, no, I've got to turn them away from all of these things and turn them to me. So what does he do? He made two calves of gold and he said, it's too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And he set the one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. So you have two places up north where the people can worship instead of having to go down into the kingdom of Judah to the temple. He says, just come and worship here in Bethel and in Tel Dan. And then he does something that no king should ever do. He sets up these false, this false worship, this false god, and he says in verse 28, Behold thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Nothing could be more problematic and wicked than to lie to people about who has offered them salvation. If we go back and look at Exodus 19 and particularly Exodus 20, verse 1 and 2, God says, I am the one who saved you from Egyptian bondage. I was loyal to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and that covenant I made with them to save you guys. And so now it's your job to be loyal to me. How can people be loyal to God if they don't know which God to worship? If a king is telling them the wrong God, and there really is only one, but if essentially setting up a fake God, people cannot be loyal to a phantom, to a God that doesn't exist. And this is what Jeroboam has done, and this is the foundation of his kingdom in the north, and it's this act that no other king in Israel ever overthrew this false worship, never brought the people back into the fold to say, no, it's God himself who did this. And for 200 years, the people continued to worship these false gods. And you have prophets like Elijah and Elisha saying, please come back. Jehovah is your God and he will save you. And they just rejected again and again. So let's jump into Elijah's story in chapter 17. Now, as you get ready to read chapter 17, let's look back at verse 16, verse 29. In the thirty and eighth year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab the son of Omri to reign over Israel. So now you have Asa as the king down south, and you have Ahab as the king up north in Israel. And Ahab, King Ahab is going to marry Jezebel, and it's this king who is extremely wicked that Elijah is going to consistently be, be interacting with and trying to convince him to worship the Lord God of Israel rather than Baal or Baal. So just because the, the Bible was often written with names as lessons, we have the main hero here is Elijah. His name means uh, Jehovah is my God. And on the other side you have Jezebel. Her name is a very interesting name. It means, where is Baal? <laughs> it's an interesting question because here's Elijah saying, God wants to be with us, Emmanuel, God with us, Jehovah is our God, and the wife of Ahab, this wicked king of Israel, she's this Phoenician princess who worships Baal, this false religion, and her name literally means where is Baal? And we're going to get into the story that Baal doesn't exist. He doesn't show up. Instead, who does show up? Jehovah, our God. And that's kind of how the story is trying to tell with these two names, is that we should never be asking where the false gods are. We should only be saying, where is God? And we find him in these covenantal relationships. So let's pick it up, chapter 17, verse 1. And by the way, Elijah is a mighty man of, of miracles and power, and, and we're going to watch some of these miracles play out in his life, which sets the stage also for then Elisha's story next week. So verse 1, 
Here's the first miracle, if you want to mark these. Here's number one. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, which is invoking the, the very existence and the life of God, is the highest Hebrew oath you can take. It's, it's the ultimate guarantee. Um, so he says, as the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. Keep in mind who we're talking about here. Elijah comes into play in the New Testament, Mount of Transfiguration, and he comes into play in church history, Doctrine and Covenants section 110, when he visits the Kirtland Temple and delivers the sealing keys. Whatsoever you seal on earth, will be sealed in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So right out of the gate you're introduced to Elijah and he's already using his sealing power, the keys that God had given to him, to declare certain things on the earth which now causes the heavens, in this case the rain, to not come. So he calls down a famine. Now, you turn the page over and you get the second miracle. Look at verse 4, 5, and 6. It shall be that thou shalt drink of the brook, this is the brook Cherith, and I have commanded the ravens to feed thee there. So he went, and the ravens would bring him bread and flesh in the morning and in the evening, and he would drink of the brook. That's another miracle. He, he has this, this life-giving support from heaven. Now stop and think about this, this little detail that we often uh, are prone to overlook, and it's the fact that the prophet is looking at the state of these people in the kingdom of Israel and he's calling down a famine or a drought on the land to try to get them to turn their heart heavenward because we've seen the pride cycle. We know that when people are suffering and when they're, they're near death, they are prone to then turn heavenward and say, oh, um, please help. And so that's the technique here. The problem is, is the prophet is now going to have to suffer some of the consequences with the people of this famine because he's in hiding, he's eating this food brought to him by the ravens, and then the brook, look at verse 7, it came to pass that after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Notice how easy it would be for him at this point to say, okay, well, this is painful for me, so let me, let me unseal the heavens so that it will rain because I'm thirsty. This is painful for me. You'll notice there's something very Christ-like here where he's willing to continue to suffer for the benefit of the people because they haven't fully repented. Ahab is never going to repent, actually, but watch what happens. Verse uh, 8, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, Arise, get thee to Zarephath, which belongeth to Zidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded a widow woman there to sustain thee." Huh. We don't even know her name, this widow of Zarephath. She's been commanded to sustain him. Look at verse 10. He arose, he went to Zarephath, and when he came into the gate of the city, behold, the widow woman was there gathering of sticks, and he called to her and he said, fetch me, I pray thee, a little water in a vessel that I may drink. Now, there are some things that Elijah doesn't know yet, or if he knows, he's not making it very clear in, in the it, – it isn't made very clear in this text. This woman, this widow woman, can you picture this moment when she looks at him and her response is, as the Lord thy God liveth, Remember that highest oath that can be made of, of the ultimate truth. You've got to trust what I'm saying here. As the Lord thy God liveth, I have not a cake. What does she have? I have a handful of meal and a little oil in a cruse. And behold, I am gathering two sticks that I may go in and dress it for me and my son that we may eat it and die. If she's only getting two sticks, unless they're really big branches, the implication is you know how small the fire is going to be that is needed to cook this last supper for her and her son to eat it before they die, which means they've probably been rationing their meal and their oil down to this day. You'll notice how the Lord uh, is 
always getting the timing just right, Elijah shows up when she's ready to go and cook her final meal. This story would have been so much easier if the Lord had sent Elijah to the widow, say, a month ago, when, yeah, we've, we're getting really nervous because the famine's continuing, uh, we're, we're going to soon run out of, of meal and oil, but, but we've got enough here, share. No, the Lord waited until all she had was a handful and a few drops of oil, and then he sent Elijah. At that moment when the widow just told him, this is all I've got, I, I don't know about you, Taylor, but if, if I were Elijah, I would have been tempted to say, oh, never mind, I'm sorry, I didn't realize it was that far gone, go home and eat that final meal. I would have been prone to pull back the command, but not Elijah, not this great prophet of the Lord. In fact, he pushes it one step further, so he says, fear not, go and do as thou hast said, but make me thereof a little cake first, and bring it unto me, and after make for thee and for thy son. Again, if I'm that woman, I'm saying to him, did you not hear what I said? Did, did I not communicate with you what I'm about to do? But I can picture Elijah standing there in a very Christ-like way saying, just trust, trust that don't fear, move forward in faith, go do what you've said, bring me the food, and then afterward go and make for thee and thy son. This story is so powerful because widows in the ancient world were the most economically distressed, and not only that, she has a child to take care of. So it's not just that it's famine, it's, this is a widow who has no means of economic sustenance according to their economic system and she's supporting somebody else. God didn't send Elijah to a wealthy man in the city, which would have easily taken care of Elijah or likely could have taken care of Elijah during the famine. He went to the, God sent Elijah to the most extreme example. And so in some ways there's trust that's required on both sides. Elijah has to trust God knows what he's doing to be sent to this widow woman, and the woman has to exercise extreme trust in God and God's prophets. And what's amazing about these stories is God has these stories preserved to make things crystal clear about what it means to trust God. If it was just kind of a, a mediocre story, it just wouldn't catch our interest. And so sometimes we read these stories, we're like, well, gosh, my life is like never like that, which hopefully it isn't. And sometimes we have dramatic stories because they are much more catching our attention and helping us to see in stark contrast what the stakes are for trusting God. Again, hopefully most of us aren't on a regular basis in the situation of the widow or Elijah, but the call is still the same, that whatever we're suffering with, there is an act of faith that we have to choose to trust God in the face of our perception of reality where we think things won't work out. So it makes me wonder. It makes me wonder what this widow woman felt. We know roughly what she heard. We, we've got the uh, at least the English translation of all of these um, ancient documents that come to us that have now become the Old Testament, so we've, we've got the words, but I don't think words bouncing off the eardrum would cause her to do what she did. I think the woman felt something. In fact, I don't know that any of you ever really make lasting, significant changes in your life just because of things you hear or see. I think you, you're more likely to make lasting changes because of things you feel. So whether it be sitting in, in general conference or in a sacrament meeting or in a personal scripture study or in a class or in a family home evening, when you hear the gospel taught or you hear something said or, or you see something, that's wonderful as it bounces off your eardrum or off of your retina, but it's when those truths sink into your heart that it actually changes you to the point where it can now get from your head to your heart and out to your hands and your feet, where you actually do something about it. So I've wondered, what did she feel when she heard these words? 
verse 14, for thus saith the Lord God of Israel, the barrel of meal shall not waste, neither shall the cruse of oil fail until the day that the Lord sendeth rain upon the earth. You can picture that old analogy of, of a devil on your, on your shoulder whispering in your ear. I can picture a devil whispering in her mind, that's crazy, he's, he's asking the impossible, don't listen, don't listen, and then you can picture the analogy of an angel sitting on the other shoulder. I love that, that idea of, of that metaphor of an angel saying, you're right, this doesn't make sense, this doesn't add up, that, that seems absolutely absurd, it's impossible. But the Lord God of Israel can do all things. With God, nothing is impossible, so trust him. He has sent his servant. This is a, a turning point for you. And the widow now has an option. She's not. She didn't lose her agency. She could go home, take that little handful of meal and that couple drops of oil, mix it with some water and make that little teeny cake, split it with her son, eat it, and die. She has that option. So I love this widow woman, her response in verse 15, she went and did according to the saying of Elijah, and she and he and her house did eat many days. Here's what we don't know from the text. We don't know if she went and got the, the handful of meal and the little drop of oil, drops of oil that, that were left in her cruse, and she made that little cake of, of bread to give to Elijah, and then we don't know when she came back if she looks in and sees a full uh, barrel of meal and a full cruise of oil, or if she saw just enough to make another meal for her and her son. We, we just don't know. What we do know is that the barrel and the cruise never failed her because of that, that uh, leap of faith. Now, brothers and sisters, I'd, we don't know what your barrel and what your cruise happened to be today, but in the, in the covenant path uh, discipleship journey that each of us are, are striving to be on, we all have – we all have barrels, we all have cruces, and sometimes we feel like we don't have what we need to accomplish what we're called upon to accomplish, but if we'll follow God's prophets, if we'll hear the whisperings of the Spirit, when those prophets speak to carry that message deep into our heart, whether it's living prophets or ancient prophets or even early church history prophets, as we read scripture, as those messages are carried deep, it can cause us to act in ways that, yeah, quite frankly makes no sense according to the world, but according to the, the revelation that we get, from heaven, it gives us that faith that we need to move forward and sacrifice the very things that we feel like we don't have enough of, and in so doing, in giving, we find out that we actually receive, and the Lord does have power to sustain us. He's a God who holds worlds without number in his hands. He holds you and me. In, in his heart. He, he holds all of our life in, in his hand, and he can provide for us beautifully, as he did for this widow. One of the sweetest miracles in all of Scripture, for, for me personally, is this widow of Zarephath that ends here, verse 16, and the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruse of oil fail. I love that conclusion to the miracle. If we tie this into Jesus, so where these stories are happening are up in the northern part of Israel. This is where Jesus does a lot of his ministry, very similarly where he provides spiritual and physical sustenance for people. And if you look carefully at the miracles that Elijah does, there's this correspondence to Jesus where he also provides. And even the next story we're going to look at, the next miracle, which is raising somebody from the dead, when Jesus does the same with Lazarus, People in the time of Jesus recognized we have a prophet among us like Elijah. And remember, prophets were those who were supposed to model and call people into alignment 
with God on the covenant path. And so Jesus models this, drawing people in, be in covenant with God and you will live. So the fourth miracle that we get in Elijah's story starts in verse 17 down through 23. The widow's son, he passed away, he died, uh, verse 17. So Elijah goes through a process of, of things to restore life to this young lad, and he brings the child back in verse 23, brought him down out of the chamber into the house and delivered him unto his mother, and Elijah said, See, thy son liveth. As, as Taylor mentioned already, there is something so beautifully Christ-like about this that Elijah restores life, that which is, has been lost. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful foreshadowing of the Savior's power over death. Now, this is the first um, recorded raising from the dead that I know of in the Old Testament, first time in the Bible that somebody is raised from the dead. And again, it's coming from Elijah, this man who has sealing keys. Whatsoever thou shalt seal on earth shall be sealed in heaven, and loosed it will be loosed. He's, he's exercising this power that has been given from God to build faith and to point us forward to Jesus Christ, which now brings us to chapter 18, where you get a fairly significant um, run-in, probably one of the most famous um, conflicts in the history of the whole Bible, maybe even of the whole scriptures. It's where Elijah has been warning and warning and warning the people, and finally he says, you know what? Enough. It's time for an ultimate showdown, and so he, he tells King Ahab, you bring all of the priests of Baal up to Mount Carmel, we're going to have – we're going we're gonna to end the conflict here. So in chapter 18, verse 17, it says, It came to pass that when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? It's like, no, Ahab, uh, it was you, and it was your false worship that you borrowed from Jeroboam, and you guys are going after the golden calves. It's interesting how often when people are suffering and causing it for themselves, we'll blame it on others, which is doubly sad because it makes it even harder to then solve the problem that's causing the distress. Yeah. So. Elijah's answer is, verse 19, Therefore, send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal, 450. So they go and they're up on Mount Carmel, and here's the famous opening line up there on that mountain. And Eli verse 21, Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? How long are you going to try to sit on this fence and please two sides? So he says, if the Lord be God, follow him, and if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. They're sitting there in silence like, uh, don't know what to say to that. We have this word that we see in our culture today, it's doubt, and it comes from the word dual, which means two, and it's a forked path, and if you get stuck here without choosing you're basically technically in damnation. You're not moving forward. And there are people today who say, yeah, it's okay to doubt. I suggest something different. I think it's better to ask questions. We go on a quest, right? And this is what Elijah's saying. I'm inviting you on a quest. You're going to choose either God or Baal. You need to choose. And your choices are going to reveal to you whether it's a good choice or not. Now, luckily, we have repentance. So if people had chosen wrong, they might realize, oh, I got wrong, I'm going to have to backtrack and choose God. But we see the story here that doubt itself keeps you from action. We came to this life to choose. Well, hopefully we're choosing well for paying attention to God's chosen prophets. But if you find yourself doubting, maybe turn things to questions and start acting on questions and learning, particularly if they're divinely inspired questions. 
So he, he continues the dialogue here with the people in verse 22 by saying, Then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I alone, remain a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. So the odds are 1 to 450. Let them therefore give us two bullocks, and let them choose one bullock for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under, and I will dress the other bullock, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under. And then here's his, here's his invitation. You've got 450 of you, there's only one of me, you go first. You get to pick the bull, I, I'll take whichever bull you don't want, you cut yours up, I'll cut mine up, and then you go and pray to your God and have your God come and light your sacrifice on fire. And maybe he'll hear you if you guys are loud enough. So verse 27 says, they, after they've cut their bull and they've been crying to him, verse 27 says, and it came to pass at noon that Elijah mocked them and said, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he's talking or he's pursuing or he's in a journey or peradventure, he sleepeth and must be awakened. <laughs> Try harder. So what do they do? They cried aloud. They cut themselves after their manner with knives and lancets till the blood gushed out upon them. And then midday gets past and nothing, and Elijah, he's taunting them, verse 30, come near unto me, and all the people came near unto him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that was broken down. So they've been going for hours and hours and hours trying to get Baal to listen and accept their sacrifice. And he says, okay, enough, you're, you're done, my turn. So he calls the people up and he repairs the altar with 12 stones, beautiful symbolism for the 12 tribes of Israel, um, and then he makes a trench to contain two measures of seed, he puts the wood in order, and then he tells them, go and get four barrels with water and pour it on the burnt sacrifice and on the wood. Well, the people do it, and then he says, go do it again, and a third time, and they did it the third time, and now water is just dripping everywhere, filling the trench around the altar. It's just drenched. He's trying to set up this impossible scenario. Yeah, nothing, fire cannot light that. Fire cannot consume that. He's trying to make it absolutely clear that there is only one God, and he is absolutely capable of doing all things. So then in the time of the evening sacrifice, he cries, verse 37, hear me, O Lord, which, by the way, don't you find that beautiful? God's prophet saying, listen to me, hear me, because this is coming from a man who has spent his life listening to God, hearing him, listening very carefully and following what God has asked him to do, and now he reverses the direction of that arrow and he's pleading with the Lord to hear him. Hear me that this people may know that thou art the Lord God and that thou hast turned their heart back again. And then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. Now, if you're standing there watching this, these people, these Israelites, there's no question in anybody's mind what just happened as he set up this, this competition. How long halt ye between two opinions? Well, he made the answer pretty straightforward, and when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. This is so interesting. We often don't think of the fire symbol when we think about God, and yet think about the Kirtland Temple, the Spirit of God like a fire is burning, and who appears? Elijah comes to deliver these keys. You think about Lehi, he sees a pillar of fire on a rock, and he gets these incredible revelations telling him about how to save his family from physical destruction. How about Moses, the burning bush, where God reveals himself to Moses through this burning bush, or the pillar of fire by night and the cloud by day for the Israelites to save them. So this is an absolutely clear symbol. Anybody who would have been there that day or heard the story would know, oh my gosh, 
Yes, we know that God brings the rains. We know he brings fertility. And of course, our most powerful stories are a God of fire who brings light and warmth. And this deep, powerful respect, we see him in awe. And the, the symbols are unmistakable that God will reveal himself in ways that are unmistakable to us. Now, our culture has changed. God, we're going to see this in the next chapter, also reveals himself in ways that are much more long-lasting with the Spirit, the sweet, soft whispering of the Spirit. So wherever you are in your life, it may not be that God needs to send fire or rain to prove to you who he is, but he knows your heart and he knows how you need to hear his voice, and he will communicate to you. And again, if we learn to feel and recognize the Spirit, we can have that fire in our bosom and know that God's presence is with us. So you, you get this incredible conclusion and the people actually turning their heart back again to God. Even though it didn't work for the king, it at least worked for the people. So verse 41, you get another miracle. Elijah said unto Ahab, get thee up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of abundance of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink, and Elijah went up to the top of Carmel, and he cast himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And so he asks his servant to go and look toward the sea, out there towards the, the uh, west, and he says, do you see anything? Nope, I don't see anything. Go again. He went, do you see anything? No, I don't see anything. The servant went seven times. You're going to see that pattern with Naaman. You're going to see that pattern in other places where God has people repeat things multiple times. There's this leap of faith, and finally, after the seventh time, he said, Behold, there ariseth a little cloud out of the sea like a man's hand. And he said, Go up, say unto Ahab, Prepare thy chariot and get thee down, that the rain stop thee not. Now that's a leap of faith. It hasn't been raining all this time. And he sees a little cloud the size of a man's hand way out there over the sea, and he says, Go tell the king, get down off the mountain now so that he doesn't get stuck in the rain. His Elijah's life is filled with example after example after example of moving forward in absolute faith in the face of, of incredible adversity and what would be worldly reasons for why you shouldn't trust this. Elijah is a beautiful example of just trusting what he hears from the Lord. And so, it came to pass, in the meanwhile, verse 45, the heaven was black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And the story then concludes in 46, and the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and ran before Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel, this valley, this fertile, beautiful valley up there um, in northern Israel. So, I love these stories of Elijah. What I think is interesting is that he's still human. I so honor his trust and his willingness to stand in the face of such challenges, and yet he still seems to struggle at times with his humanity, his fallen nature, that he goes on this long journey. In fact, if we if we go back to look at verse 4, um, at the bottom of verse 4, four O oh Lord, take away my life, for I am not better than my father. So we don't know the whole story of why Elijah's feeling discouraged, but it seems like people have not fully turned to the Lord, even after these incredible things. Has there been a time in your life where things went well and yet there were still naysayers who didn't get on board and say, man, I now trust God and I'm willing to stop creating problems for other people? And I think if I'm interpreting Elijah's life, I think he's a little discouraged that after all this work that he's done, and really God's done it, that people are still choosing to disbelieve, to, de to be disconnected covenantly from God that Elijah goes on this physical and symbolic journey back to Horeb, another name for Mount Sinai, which is the origin story for the Israelites in terms of their covenantal connection to God, that Elijah wants to be like Moses. I want to get back to that mountain and re-engage with God in this symbolic location. So if you, if you think this through for a minute, what a lonely, difficult job it is for prophets at times when, like Taylor said, he had, he's performed six amazing miracles, um, some of them very visible in front of everybody, and yet 
the people aren't aren't coming to him saying, okay, let's make this right. So Taylor read you the last line of verse 4. Look at the first part of verse 4. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, so he left the people, he just, it's as if he couldn't take it anymore. He's, he, he goes out into the wilderness and he came and he sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die. The man who has sealing keys didn't have power over his own life. There's only one person who's ever had that ability, and that's Jesus, who, who freely gave up the ghost at the right time. But he requested he might die, and then he laid down and he slept under that juniper tree. Look at the second half of verse 5. Behold, then an angel touched him and said unto him, Arise and eat. Don't you love the fact that even when this great prophet, who has devoted his whole life to the Lord, he's discouraged, he's down, he, he wants to be done, he, he wants to move on to the next life. His mission isn't complete. The time is not right. So an angel comes, touches him, and brings him food. Now, most of you listening to this or, or reading this verse think to yourself, of a heavenly being coming down, this angel of light, touching him and giving him food and drink, and that's probably the way it happened. But I'm thinking more in terms of you in your life here, of how often angels come by your house and bring you food and drink when you're feeling down or discouraged or sick or afflicted in any manner. And maybe it's not about receiving the food, Maybe in this lesson it's about being that angel and delivering that, that life-giving substance to people that maybe they need to be reminded that life is worth living and there's hope and there's help and the heavens are aware of them. What an amazing thing if you ever get those promptings to take something, it doesn't need to be food, it could be anything, or send something to somebody, if we hear him follow through on those little promptings that come and we think to ourselves, that's silly, they, they don't need that. I mean, Elijah, he's one of the greatest prophets of all time, he, he would never need any help, right? I think even God's servants occasionally could use that help from people around them to recognize, hey, you're doing a good work, keep it up, it's appreciated. And I love that part of the story. And then once he's, he's got this energy back, then as Taylor said, he ends up going down to the same place where Moses started, down there at Mount Horeb, it's on Mount Sinai. very long journey. It's a tough journey. There's not a lot of vegetation, not a lot of water. I mean, he was already living through a famine. Like, if you want a natural famine, go down to Mount Sinai area. Permanent. You, you don't even need to seal the heavens. They're just like, <laughs> it's dry. And yet, it's in that wilderness, the wilds, where he wants to fully encounter God, where he wants to put it, Elijah seems to be putting himself under total need for God in his life in all ways. Love that. Oh, and by the way, do you find it interesting that of the people who appear on the Mount of Transfiguration and in the Kirtland Temple, two of them are Elijah and Moses. There's, there's something beautiful connecting about these two prophets in the Old Testament and the keys that they provide for us in these the latter days. So now Moses is – or sorry, Elijah is living in this cave up there and he's having this dialogue with the Lord. And he says, I have been very jealous or zealous or very energetic for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, the one that was given right there on that mountain, Exodus chapter 20, Moses and the children of Israel. They've thrown down thine altars and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life, to take it away. So the Lord says, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord, and behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks, 
before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind, and after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire, and after the fire, a still, small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entering in of the cave, and behold, there came a voice unto him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? And here, having heard God's voice in the stillness of his heart, Elijah repeats himself, and he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. I don't know the significance of the fact that Elijah bracketed this experience with this, I've been jealous for you, I've, I've feared you, I've served you, but the people have rejected you. And in the middle of these two similar verses, you get these powerful forces of nature, wind, earthquake, fire, you get things that would, would scare you and motivate you to action, to, to do something very quickly, and yet the Lord wasn't in any of those. He was in a still, small voice. So as we conclude the lesson today, you know, the Lord could cause an earthquake or a fire or a natural disaster to cover every part of the world, every every nation, kindred, tongue, and people could experience these massive show of, of heavenly power to try to get them to repent. But I love the fact that the Lord was in that still, small voice, that voice that's almost imperceptible, it's so quiet that if you're not really listening, you'll miss it in the noise of the world, in the calamities that are going on around us, and the wars and the rumors of wars, and the struggles that our world is facing, if we, if we listen too much to those things and, and govern our life based on fear of all the bad things that could happen, it's not going to lead us in the right direction. But if we hear him, if we tune our ear and our heart and our mind heavenward to listen for that still, small voice, then he'll guide us in that straight and narrow way that, that leads to him. So the message that Elijah gets is a mission. He's sent on a mission as a prophet. There's a new king to anoint, and Elijah, you are not alone. There's 7,000 who still worship me. Now, that may be a real number. It also might be symbolic, and if it is symbolic, seven is a symbol of like perfection. You multiply by a thousand, it's like, Elijah, there's far more people who follow me than you realize. And sometimes we get really alone in our lives and we think, we're the only one. And yet, God knows the hearts of everybody, and there are far more that are with us than against us. And then, of course, he gets significant help. We have the story, the introduction of Elisha, which, whose name is related to the word Joshua or Jesus, and it means God saves. So in Elijah's distress, a man is sent called Elisha, God saves. And if we go down to verse um, 19, so Elijah departed thence and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen before him, and he with the twelfth, and Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon Elisha. So the symbol that you will have the prophetic authority when my mission on life, in life is done. And Elisha left the oxen and ran after Elijah, reminds me of Peter, and running to the Savior, saying, I will follow you, and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow thee. And he said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? And he returned back from him, and took a yoke of oxen, and slew them, and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen, and gave unto the people, and they did eat. Then he arose and went after Elijah, and ministered unto him. Wow, this is a man who essentially has no introduction, he gives everything up. He gives up his oxen, his farm, he gives up his family. He just immediately follows a prophet. I just find it so compelling that we have this man who recognizes a call from God and is willing to go on the mission he's been sent on, willing to set aside the things of this world so he can focus on the things of God 
as God has asked. So as we conclude today, I hope that that sentence is, is echoing in your mind. How long halt ye between two opinions? The, the call of the world, the loud, the, the in-our-face voices of the world, it, they're very alluring, but that still small voice of the Lord that often feels very outnumbered, one to 450, if we tune our ear and our mind and our heart to him, as the Lord liveth, he will deliver. And our barrel and our cruise will not fail us if we move forward in faith, putting our complete trust in him. We know he lives and we know he's guiding us if we'll just now hearken and listen to him. That's our prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Know that you're loved. And spread light and goodness.